Let's start with art this morning. This is Alexander Rodin's uh, The Thinker. This particular sculpture has always struck me deeply, and I found myself on a bit of a Rodin rabbit hole researching a couple weeks ago for this teaching. I have always been deeply moved by this particular sculpture. The man's nudity, as you look at the thinker, has always made me just uncomfortably feel my own sense of exposure, my own sense of vulnerability as the world watches and I can't cover myself with anything. And then Rodin's thinker, his posture of thoughtfulness actually acts as a covering for his nudity. And so the thinker has always embodied for me my own attempts to think my way into a place of security or to think my way into a fuller sense of my own identity. And it wasn't just this sculpture, though, and I didn't know all of this about Rodin. The rabbit hole went super deep. This particular sculpture, it was originally part of a larger commission that Rodin had received, begun in 1880 for a doorway surround called the Gates of Hell. This is an image of the Gates of Hell here. You won't be able to see it that well, but underneath the three figures at the top, there at the center is the thinker sitting in the center of the gates of hell. Rodin, for this piece, made sculptures based on the characters from Dante's Inferno, that poem. The figures around Rodin in this gates of hell, they all depict lust and power and resignation and agony and despair. I mean, I found myself at staff retreat just thumbing through these images individually, just moved and unable to unfixate my eyes from them. Very, very powerful because Dante's Inferno and these figures, they all represent humans in hell. And there sits Rodin's thinker, placed at the center of the composition over the doorway. He's somewhat larger than all the rest of the figures, meditating on the thinker. In this particular surround made the imagery all the more potent for me because the man is sitting in hell naked and exposed and vulnerable. And I sat there, surrounded by my beautiful staff, the sun shining through the light, through the, through the little Airbnb where we were doing our staff, and I felt naked and exposed staring at this thing. And he's surrounded by pain and chaos and lust and angst. Rodin's thinker in this setting is sitting in death. And as I meditated on it, I realized that there sits Rodin's thinker trying to cover himself and think his way to salvation. Salvation from hell. Think his way out of his exposure and inabilities. And this, friends, is in part what Koheleth is doing in the book of Ecclesiastes. As we come to the book of Ecclesiastes and our mascot, this representative voice for the late Western modern urbanite, Koheleth finds himself feeling exposed and vulnerable, trying to think his way to some form of salvation, some form of meaning, some form of flourishing. Ecclesiastes 1, 12 to 13 is where we find ourselves this morning, and I forgot to do the scripture reading. I'm really sorry. We're just going to keep ripping. I'm sorry. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. And so for Koheleth, the unstoppable momentum of passing time and the certainty of his looming death and death for all, it was leaving him feeling exposed and vulnerable. And what we learn from Koheleth as well, that his communities, his faith communities, traditions and teachings, they seem to be failing him. 
his belief systems were falling apart. And so he was beginning to really question and challenge everything that he had understood to be true. And so in our section for the morning, he decides what he's going to do to try to find meaning, to try to find salvation, to try to find flourishing. He's going to apply his mind to study and to explore by wisdom everything under the sun or under the heavens. He was going to labor to think his way and act his way to flourishing and salvation. Now, the Hebrew here for apply his mind is actually Natan Leb, which literally translates, he devoted the whole of his being, his heart, all of his faculties. Koheleth decides, I'm going to put all of my attention, effort, reason, thought, experiences. I am going to, with everything that I am, I'm going to search out and explore what is the good life. And how do I live it? And his conclusion, verse 13, Ecclesiastes 1, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. Now, I think the NIV translators actually got a little bit squeamish here of what Koheleth's actual conclusion was. Renowned scholar Robert Alter translates Koheleth's conclusion this way. After reasoning and thinking and putting all of his faculties to, to defining the good life and finding the good life and living the good life, Koheleth says, you know what I found out? This whole thing called human experience, it's just an evil business that God has given to the sons of man to busy ourselves with till we die. <laughs> He's a bitter dude. He's a rough, rough read. And like Koheleth, like Rodin's thinker, you and I there in our seats this morning feeling exposed and vulnerable to a watching world, we are all either consciously or unconsciously, applying all of our faculties. We are all trying to think and find and experience and reason our way to what we would call the good life. Every human is searching and exploring and looking for and thinking our way towards some for form of salvation, salvation from whatever it is that you and I think we need saved from today. And humanity has been doing this for all of recorded history. From the thought movements of antiquity to modern philosophy 101 courses, all cultures have had their thought systems and their sages that define the good life and the way to live it. Jesus himself, of course, was the ultimate philosopher's sage because he was wisdom incarnate. New Testament scholar Jonathan Pennington, he argues that Jesus' lessons, especially the Sermon on the Mount, were the teachings of a sage king who was showing the way to what Jesus would call the abundant life or eternal life or salvation. So everybody track with all this? This was just the big setup for the morning. These are our three key ideas that we're going to try to weave together this morning. Number one, all of humanity is always applying all of our faculties to think our way into salvation. Number two, no matter how much time, energy, and thought we invest, we always end up frustrated. And number three, there is one human who truly showed the way. That's our roadmap for the morning. Human wisdom fails. Koheleth's frustration, the sage king and his kingdom. Everybody tracking with that? Human wisdom fails. Koheleth's frustration, the sage king and his kingdom. Let's start with human wisdom that fails us. Through the centuries, there have been hundreds, possibly, of philosophical schools of thought that have arisen, organized, and proposed the way of order and virtue, human flourishing, and salvation. There are economic schools that explore money and power, things like Marxism, fascism, capitalism, socialism, communism. Most of us have heard these in the taglines in our news feeds or social talking heads bringing forth these ideas into our 
brains. There are political and social systems throughout the centuries that have defined the best way for governments to organize and for people to govern themselves, confederations, monarchies, constitutionalism, nationalism, populism, have you guys heard these terms of late? <laughs> Almost every school of philosophy has also had alongside it an accompanying set of teachings on ethics and morality and virtual, virtue. Excuse me. All schools of philosophy have always tried to attempt to answer the question, how do we know right and wrong? What is justice? What is law? You get the idea. Humans have always been doing a lot of thinking about what the good life is and how to live it and how to be saved. So for this first section, this big idea that we're interweaving into our morning, everybody put on your student hats. We're going to class for a little bit of a Philo 101 lecture. Ready to rock and roll? Oh, come on, nerds. This is going to be great. <laughs> I just want to briefly survey four philosophical schools of thought, some of which have their roots deep in antiquity that are informing all of us this morning, okay? Now, I recognize for you philosophy majors in here this morning, what I'm about to do is a shallow survey. It's just merely to get our bearings and to prime the pump, to plant some seeds for self-awareness and introspection. I recognize with these philosophical schools of thought how much nuance, complexity we are going to brush over in a 10-minute period of time talking about these things. But this section is going to make for some fantastic conversation points in your groups this week. So you philosophers and we'll be able to wax eloquent about whatever it is that you know about what I didn't discuss today. Cool? Okay. The goal, this first section is so important. The goal is self-awareness, like I said. What Socrates called to live the examined life. Or what St. Paul said was the command to watch our life and our beliefs carefully. Remember, if we're to develop resilience, which is why we're here, we've got to get to the roots, the deep roots of our perspectives and our belief structures. So culture shapes us. We are daily inundated with ways of understanding right and wrong. We are bombarded daily with multitudes of messages on meaning and flourishing and salvation. And all of us tend to live, mostly unconsciously, out of a grab bag of different schools of thought that have developed over the centuries. So as I walk through these four, I'm, and remember there's hundreds, but I've distilled it down to four big ones that I think are kind of overarching. They kind of catch, they're catch-alls. Okay? As I read through these definitions or these summaries of these schools of philosophy, see if you don't have some of these thoughts yourself. See if this isn't the way that you're navigating life. Cool? Stoicism. How many of you have heard of Stoicism by a raise of hands? Yeah. Interesting. I have noted, I have noted over the last, especially since 2020 and the lockdowns, a massive increase in the popularity of Stoicism, which has its roots in ancient Rome and Greece. Stoicism focuses on how one is to live in a world when things don't go our way. Does that sound familiar? When things don't go our way, how do we live there? Stoicism attempts to answer that question. And for the Stoic, acceptance is the key. Just accepting what is happening around us. Now, some of you may associate stoicism with like emotional repression. Oh, they're so stoic about their emotions. I personally think that would be a misread of the philosophy. But stoicism is certainly focused on emotional self-regulation. So stoic philosophy, in summary, would say that human flourishing, salvation comes by just accepting what is. Don't resist it. And then whatever is within your control, do that as well as you possibly can. Stoic statements, maybe you thought these of late, are, I'm just going to grin and bear it. Well done, Stoic. Keep a stiff upper lip. What about Nike's just do it? 
These are stoic ideas that carry into our culture. We filter these things through the lens of our lives, trying to just flourish, trying to think our way to salvation. Number two, hedonism. How many of you have heard of hedonism? Ah, good hedonists right here in San Diego. San Diego is a city of hedonists. That's why I love San Diego so much. Hedonism, hedonism at its root, says the meaning, flourishing, the good life, it is found in personal happiness gained through whatever means necessary. I recognize that's a very broad brush statement. Happiness in the hedonist framework is sometimes construed as just mere bodily pleasure. And so often throughout history, the green light has been given to what social convention would say is depravity by this philosophical school. (laughs) But listen, a sophisticated hedonist does not believe that a frat party is the ultimate good life, okay? Greek thinker Epicurus, have you guys heard of Epicureanism? Good food, good friends, good wine. This is Epicureanism. This is the meaning of life. He was a hedonist, and he argued that moderation actually leads to the most happiness for the individual in the long run, not a frat party, okay? Hedonism is our cultural's mantra. Have you thought this? Have you said this to somebody? Have you said this to your therapist? Has your therapist said this to you? I've just got to do what will make me the most happy. If it makes you happy and you're not hurting anyone, then go for it. Or my favorite from those wise, sage punks, the Beastie Boys, you got to fight for your right. There you go, hedonist. You got it. You got it. Where are you filtering through your life? I just got to do whatever makes me happy. That's the way to salvation. No matter what it costs, no matter how hungover, no matter who I hurt, or in the name of not hurting anybody physically, but who I may hurt relationally and emotionally, I got to do what I got to do because I got to get happy. Hedonism. Existentialism is the third. It's quite a complicated system of thought. Probably has its roots in, in Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, Sartre, Great, great, great formative thinkers for the way that you all are thinking right now, even though you don't realize that. Existentialism asks, look, what is the point of living if life has no inherent purpose? If with Koheleth we say it's just all hevel, it's just all vapor and smoke, what's the point of this? And what are we supposed to do with our inevitable demise? We are all going to die. What do we do? And existentialism massive summary here, answers that question by saying, well, we are responsible in and of ourselves for creating purpose. We create our own meaning in the midst of a meaningless universe. No matter how meaningless this universe must be, we will create our own meaning and we'll kind of ignore the fact that it's still meaningless. Everybody track with that? So there's a lot of academic jargon and a lot of really thick books and really really smart people that have written extensively on existentialism. And we may not understand the academic jargon, but I tell you, this school of thought has saturated the way that you and I think this morning. You do you is an existentialist thought. Your truth is your truth. Why would I tell you what your truth is? Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. We're existing in this meaningless universe. We make up what we think we need to make up to survive, to thrive. I've got to be authentic to myself. Or given our therapeutic cultural moment, you need to go deep within, find the wounded child, and be your authentic self. I'm not mocking that. I'm saying that's where I've been trained as well. To find the authentic self, to define the authentic self. These statements have self-definition and self-creation of meaning and purpose at their very center. Okay, And then the final one that I see sort of leaking in post-2020 as exhaustion and fatigue and cynicism are really taking society by the throat, 
nihilism. How many of you have heard of nihilism? Nihilism. Philosophers, all of you, wonderful. Nihilism is a grab bag system. It's not even really a system. It's a, it's a series of thinkers who have essentially thrown their hands up in the air and they've said, look, there is no good life. Who are we kidding? There are no morals. There are no beliefs. There is no ultimate leaning. There is no, there is no salvation. Nihilism comes from the Latin nihil, which means nothing. Our friend Koheleth, if you read Koheleth at a fairly shallow level, you'll realize he's orbiting around this space when he brings up all the hevel that everything is. Everything is nothing. Everything is nihilistic. Everything is just, it's, there's no point to any of it. Exhaustion and frustration and unmet expectations and a huge universe over which we have no control, it can be very tempting, and I have heard many, and I've been tempted myself to just throw the towel in, raise our hands to the air, and say, you know what, there is no meaning. I'm never going to figure this out. I'm not even going to try. I'm, there is, there's probably no salvation. Statements like, and maybe you've been here, who cares? What's the point? Nothing matters anyways. Nothing is going to change. These are nihilistic answers to life, a resignation. Now, despite thousands of years and hundreds upon thousands of pages of philosophers' thoughts on the good life, we still, today, though we are the most affluent, comfortable, long-living humans to ever exist on the planet, we still find ourselves feeling exposed and vulnerable. No matter which thought system we are living into, and most of us are living out of some grab bag of each of those unconsciously, we drift in between all of those systems all throughout our day, no matter which one we find ourselves saying, this is still failing me. I'm still frustrated. My questions are not being answered fully. I am not flourishing. I am frustrated, which brings us to Koheleth's frustration. We're going to go with the TH from here on out. Koheleth's frustration. This was his issue, friends. Koheleth had devoted himself to study and to experiencing, and it all came up short. As we read through the rest of the book, what we're going to see is Koheleth living, living out of every single one of these systems, stoically just trying to keep it together, hedonistically just diving into the deep and existentially, what is meaning? There is no meaning. Nihilistically, hevel. It's all nothing. He lives in these spaces hundreds of, year before, hundreds of years before any of these systems were even formally developed because human patterns and thought systems have been the same since Adam and Eve as we've been trying to think our way back to the garden, back to perfection, to find salvation somewhere in the midst of the hell in which we find ourselves constantly living. And so Koheleth's frustration was that no matter how much he thought and applied himself, it was always to no avail. Verse 14, Ecclesiastes 1, I've seen all the things and I've done everything under the sun and all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind, literally herding the wind, a shepherd's symbol, a shepherd's metaphor here, herding the wind. That imagery is painful. It's angsty. Humans doing everything that can be done under the sun. You and I stoically just accepting what is. Hedonistically eating and drinking and being merry all the way through sunny San Diego. Existentially sitting at coffee trying to authenticate our deepest self. And yet we find ourselves pursuing the good life and salvation. And we look onto the world and we say, I feel like I've been chasing the wind. I'm chasing the wind and I'm exhausted and I'm more cynical than I've ever been. As a wisdom teacher, Koheleth would put Proverbs to make his point. Verse 15, Ecclesiastes 1. Look, what is crooked can't be straightened. What's lacking can't be counted. It's a pretty miserable proverb. 
He's saying that he saw an irreducible twisting and a disjointedness to life under the sun, and it could not be rectified. This is Kohelet's conclusion. He realized, look, we humans, we don't have all the pieces we need to have the whole picture. In fact, we are never going to have all the pieces. In fact, we don't even know which pieces we need, and we will never have them. And so we cannot and we will not grasp all that there is to know about this life, for it to make sense, to find flourishing, to be saved. And for Koheleth and for you and I this morning, that is a difficult reality, and it is a difficult reality that is central to the human experience. We are not going to escape Koheleth's frustration. We cannot find a way to flourishing. We will be frustrated. Because central to the human experience is this inability to take that which is twisted and make it straight. To take that which does not have anything to it and make it account for something. And in that helpless sense of not being able to figure it out, Koheleth's world actually became deterministic. Deterministic. What that means is Koheleth looked at the world and he said, look, whatever is determined will be. It's all determined. There is no opportunity for something new under the sun to rise up. Koheleth had become fatalistic. Can you guys say fatalistic with me? Fatalistic. For him, the evil business of being human meant that the crookedness of our existence would never be straightened out. And so we find ourselves in that painful place. Many modern Christians, the deconstructing community, in that place. But we can never forget, as this sermon turns a corner, thank God, we can never forget the broader picture that the Bible gives us. Koheleth is seated in many, many scrolls from Genesis to Revelation that give this broader, bigger picture of who God is, what human existence is, what hope is. Koheleth was focused on one reality of life. His reality was true, guys. Don't miss this. Koheleth observed life, and what he saw was true, that we're never going to figure it all out, that we're going to be frustrated with it, and that then we're going to die. That's all true. He wasn't sweeping that under the carpet. He wasn't camouflaging that. He just puts it front and center, like a very uncomfortable splash of cold water on the face. Here it is. But from that, from that slice of the pie that he was so focused on that was true, he then drew fatalistic conclusions, and he drew and lived into a world that was hopeless. I fell into this a number of years ago so deeply, so deeply, dangerously deeply. I had adopted a view of God that was mostly true. It was true, but it emphasized only certain characteristics and stories about who God actually is. How many of you are familiar with the theological term Calvinism? Calvinism? Let me say up front, I love my Calvinist brothers and sisters. I'm indebted to John Calvin for the way that I read the Bible to this day in many ways. The Reformed movement, all of it, phenomenal. My Calvinism had emphasized certain facets of Calvinist doctrine, I had made God's wrath his center. So when I thought about God, I knew he was wrathful, and I had made my wretchedness my center. I'd also made what Calvinists call predestination, which I now have some pretty serious qualms with that definition as traditionally understood in Calvinist circles. But I had made predestination the centerpiece of how God orders the universe. Therefore, the God that I served was wrath-filled towards me, and everything I got was because I was a wretch. And by the way, it was all predetermined. So he was some sort of mean puppet master monster who was just trashing me in my 30s. I spent 10 years believing the mean puppet master 
had providentially engineered the trashing of my soul. And can you guys see how that, there's truth there. There is wrath. God is holy. There is wrath. And can you guys see how we are sinful and the cross was necessary, but that was my primary focus. And God is sovereign. God is in control. God is involved. God is doing. God does order. God does plan. But when only those three facets became the primary emphasis, it devolved into the things that were all true about God, but missed compassion and love and providence and partnership with God. All the things that make Christianity such a paradoxical faith of power and nuance and complexity, all those were gone. And so there I found myself bitter and raging mad and clinically depressed, and everything was just one cruel thing that this wrath-filled God was doing to a wretch like me. And in 2014, it was just another one of those moments where God swept in. I began a master's degree at Western Seminary, and I came under the tutelage of a man named Dr. Gary Brashears. God bless his soul. Gary, in my estimation, when I first met Gary, was an inconsistent theologian. Gary was what he called, he called himself a Calvinian. He was both Arminian and Calvinist. He said that God could be providential and we could partner with him. And I would sit there in the middle of my master's classes with him and 20 other guys. I was in a cohort, some of my best friends in the whole world. And I would argue with the man. I would argue with the 65-year-old PhD in the New Testament. You're wrong, Gary. And Gary would say, no, Dan, you're wrong. And I would say, no, you're wrong. <laughs> and then Gary would pull this little trick on me. Read the Bible, Dan. Oh. I'm reading the Bible, Gary. Look at this. It says wrath. Look at this. It says I'm a wretch. What, what does it say here, Dan? What does this say? What does this say about your prayers doing something? Well, I know, but from my perspective, when I pray, it can't mean anything because I've decided that it doesn't mean anything because God is wrathful and I'm a wretch and he's providential. And Gary would say, Dan, read your Bible. Dan, read your Bible. My entire master's degree was Dr. Gary Brashear saying, Dan, read your Bible. <laughs> Save my soul. Sabbatical saved my soul in 2013, and my, it took me six years to get my master's degree. But sitting with those brothers, I met brothers who came from very, and women too, sisters who came from very disparate theological backgrounds in mine, and we would argue. I mean, <laughs> you guys all think of master's seminary classes as like people sitting, taking notes. It's very professorial, very put together. You put 20 A-type dudes that are all theologically pretty, pretty well read and get them arguing with each other. And Gary was just like, go, boys. And we would just go. <laughs> and I was transformed. Some of my best friends I still disagree with theologically, but I am incredibly incredibly grateful because they took the slice of the pie that was true and then I was forced to read my Bible and to have it expanded into this broader, mysterious, what's crooked can't be made straight with God in our little heads. Trust me, just can't be done. Mysterious, felt twisted, but true because reading the Bible opens this broad paradoxical mystery that we all live into. I do think that Kohalath's frustrations might have been eased a little bit if he would have opened up the rest of the Bible and humbled himself and read carefully the fuller descriptions of God within his creation. But what we see in Kohalath, and this may just be what the author's intention was for us to see, I'm, I'm speculating at this point, it seems that Kohalath was unwilling to budge. Dr. Brashears would have said to Kohalath, hey Kohalath, let's read the rest of the Bible. And Koheleth said to himself, verses 16 to 17 of Ecclesiastes 1, I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who's ruled over Jerusalem before me. Look, Gary, I know I'm right. 
That was me the first three years of my degree. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. I've read all the systematic theologies, Gary. I'm reasonable. I've read a lot of philosophy. You're wrong. You're contradicting yourself. Read your Bible, Dan. Then I applied myself to understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is just hurting the wind. Koheleth, like a lot of moderns, and I'm going to say this pastorally to you as somebody who has been there and is still there in so many ways. Koheleth was arrogant. He was confident in places that he should not have been confident. He was convinced that his blog reading and his tweet reading and his shallow reading of a couple systematic theologies and maybe a philosophy 201 course had made him the wisdom of the world. And so he could stand with his fist shaking at the world and at God. That's dangerous, folks. And I've been on that precipice more times than most of you, likely. It's dangerous and it's arrogant. And it's the epitome of foolishness. And so Koheleth would say, I had nothing left to learn. He didn't need to doubt his doubts, which is the key to true faith, doubting your doubts. And his deconstruction was watertight in his mind. And from that perspective, of course, from that perspective, for Koheleth, any more wisdom and learning was just going to bring itself to more pain. Verse 18 of Ecclesiastes 1, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Growth and wisdom from that perspective will always cause deeper levels of pain because the twistedness and the disjointedness of creation and our experience becomes all the more evident the more you look at it through that one little lens of true things that aren't balanced by the broader truth of scriptural revelation. So the more he studied and saw through that lens, the more pain he experienced. And that's where many of us find ourselves as late Western moderns. We find ourselves indebted to human philosophies that have promised meaning and answers to us but they've all continued to come up short, and we don't know why. So we shake our fists. I figured it out. I read the philosophy books. I sat through therapy. It should be this way, and now I'm angry, God. We apply our entire being to finding flourishing, but we find ourselves frustrated. Friends, we shift gears towards communion at this point. Your frustration is your Father's invitation. Your frustration is your father's invitation to let repentance and rest become your salvation. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. Your frustration is your father's invitation to stop reading, to stop philosophizing, to stop frustratedly, angstily pursuing whatever it is that you think will get you out of the hell that you feel like you're sitting in. Your frustration is your father's invitation to let quietness and trust become your strength, to let repentance and rest be your salvation. And God intends, God intends for us to see glimmers of his kingdom through human philosophies, but he intends for that to lead us ultimately through frustration to the truth. Jesus is the answer. Class, if you just respond with Jesus is the answer to all the questions. You win. The sage king and his kingdom. Here's where we wrap it up. The sage king and his kingdom. Every human philosophy has echoes of the truth within it. Every human philosophy has echoes of the truth. As image bearers, the deepest realities of existence are reverberating through us from the garden right through into today. And those echoes, they are faint, 
Those echoes have become malformed and deformed in our cultural moment due to Satan and sin's twisting. And so Jesus' teachings, he comes along, and those who wrote about Jesus in the New Testament, his apostles, St. Paul, Peter, James, Jude, the like, the teachings of the New Testament that are encapsulations of all of Jesus' teachings, they provide the missing pieces that we are looking for. They provide the picture that human philosophers could not paint for us, and they provide the more true and full picture that take us out of looking at true things into a broader, whoa, truth is much bigger than I could have ever anticipated. I have to surrender and submit myself to this. I gotta be humble in light of this truth because, whoa, 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 whoa. It is way more than I could have ever anticipated. What Jesus does is he comes and he corrects human systems of thought where they are completely off. He just rebukes them, casts them aside. He also amplifies where human systems of thought are picking up on the echoes of his kingdom. So for example, briefly here, with the Stoics, with Stoicism, Jesus would agree with the Stoics that emotional regulation and detachment are important. 100%. That is a kingdom of God thing. But he would say, we're not going to do this in our own strength. You must be born again, Nicodemus. You must have a whole new set of desires born from within you by faith. The fruit of the Spirit will be love and joy and peace and patience and self-control. You won't go this on your own. You won't just grin and bear it. You won't just grit your teeth and get through it. I'm going to indwell you and recreate you and align you with my will. In other words, as we mature in Jesus, emotional regulation of our lives is fueled by his power and presence. And unlike the Stoics, Jesus would have pointed to telos. It's the philosophical term for purpose. Jesus would have pointed to purpose in our pain. The Stoics would say, look, this is the way life is. Just accept it. Just deal with it. Grin and bear it. Grit your teeth. Get through it. The New Testament would say, this is working together for the good of you and every person on this planet. That radically changes the way that you experience your pain today. In other words, you are not living in a mechanical universe where you just have to accept it Every circumstance is actually engineered in some paradoxical interweaving of chaos and sin and Satan and God's providence and all of this complexity that we could never fathom, never get the full picture, but it is all under God's hand through grace and mercy, ending in purposes that are good for you. This is Jesus' correction of the Stoic Grin and Barrett. Hedonists, honestly, you guys, Jesus was accused of being a hedonist. They called him a glutton and a drunkard. Our king loved his grub and he loved to get his party on. It's amazing to me. I don't think I'm being sacrilegious. I think I'm being representative of who he was. He would have fit into the hedonist crowd, but he wouldn't have been sinfully without moderation, pursuing the pleasures of the body as a means of fulfillment and happiness. He would have delighted in friendship and food and creation. I think Jesus would have been a blast. But Jesus took the pleasures and the delights of this world one step further, and he was teaching his followers that these are just glimpses into the kingdom to come. I won't drink of this cup until I drink with you anew in the kingdom, he would say. And he would let his disciples sip wine as we wait for that moment when we enter into the kingdom of God, and it's a buffet of God's glory and goodness, and we're all there to eat, drink, and be merry for eternity. Every moment you enjoy good food, every smile on a friend's face, every good sip of a good drink, you are experiencing a little glimmer, a little glimmer of the kingdom to come. And so there are all many sermons, a million of them, every single day. This is what Jesus would have said about the hedonistic framework. Existentialism. 
Existentialism gets kind of weird because it was so strictly atheistic for most of its thought uh, fountainheads. Jesus agreed, though, with existentialists that we do have to find meaning. Jesus would have said, you were designed for meaning. You, you were created with an intentional purpose in mind, a calling. Uh, St. Paul would say a poema. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And Jesus would say that there is no way you're ever going to, in fact, he would completely refute the existentialists. He would say, you're never going to find meaning by finding your authentic self. He would say, pick up your cross and lose yourself. <laughs> the opposite, the opposite of existential theory towards flourishing is to lose self. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. 25 years in walking with him, I'm beginning to realize, oh, you actually mean it. Okay. Ah. Uh, I don't get to self-define. That's why I'm still frustrated. Okay, all right, great. This is going to hurt. All right, but you love me. Okay, let's go. Jesus taught that we receive our identities and purposes from him as we lose ourselves for his glory. And then for the nihilist in the room, nothing matters. It's all going to burn anyway. Jesus would have said, you're right. I think he would have said, you're right. Jesus saw the beginning and the end, and he did see an end to what we experience under the sun, the physical realm as we understand it. There's a lot of debate in New Testament scholarship around what the end of the world and the apocalypse and revelation means, but suffice it to say, the images that we have of the end are scary. The elements burning. We know scientifically, as I talked about last week, the sun's going to expand and just burn up the universe, and it's all going to collapse back into one tiny little speck of infinitesimal nothingness. Jesus would have agreed with that, but as we've been saying throughout Koheleth, that's not the end. The New Testament says that the end of all things, the nihilism, when things become nothing in this life under the sun or under the heavens, that's the beginning of the new forever. In a new heavens, in a new earth, where the sage king rules his kingdom, the entire universe forever. And this is the final piece as we come to communion this morning. Jesus was more than a sage philosopher. Jesus didn't lay out for you the way to human flourishing and salvation, Jesus said, I am the way. No sage philosopher apart from Jesus said something so audacious. Not my teachings, not my prescriptions, not my reasonings, not my philosophies. I am, Jesus would say. I am your way to salvation, to flourishing. Jesus would have said, because at the center of every human philosophy of salvation and flourishing is ourselves, us grinning and bearing it, us eating and being merry through it, us existentially self-defining. It's all self at the center. Even the nihilist says, I'm at the center of defining this as nothing. And Jesus would have said, you can't save yourself. You need a savior. That's why I'm here. I am the way and the truth and the life. And so Jesus's life for us beyond philosophy becomes our life. The end goal of all of creation is union with God. That's what you exist for, union with him, to become one with him. And in the loss of your false self that's constructed by all of these human philosophies, you discover your truest self. You become your most authentic self. In him, with him, through him, for him. And it's all rooted, as St. Paul would pray in Ephesians chapter 3, rooted and grounded in an incomprehensible love. Love. Friend, your frustration this morning is because you long to be loved. That's it. You just want to know that you're beautiful. You just want to know that you're going to be cared for. 
You just want to know that you're seen and valued. There is no philosophical construct, no matter how much, like Koheleth, we give all of our faculty to finding that flourishing, to hear somebody say, you matter, you're beautiful, you're worthy. There's no philosophical construct that will ever bring that about. The king and creator of the universe came and he said, here is your value to me. Here is your worth. And when Jesus went and died on the cross, he was taking into himself all the deformities of our thoughts. In many ways, for those of us this morning that have our fist raised to God, I'm so angry at you. Jesus said, here, be angry at me. Just, I'll take it. I'll take it because I love you. And Jesus took the frothy anger of human frustration into his body. And Jesus took the fist, the literal fist of humans against himself saying, as you, as you beat me down because you're so angry and confused, I will take that, I will absorb that into myself to the point of death. And I will deliver you from your ultimate frustration. The ultimate frustration is death for the human. And Jesus said, I will deliver you. I will deliver you if you'll trust me. If you'll surrender yourself, if you'll surrender your philosophical constructs, if you'll hear the echoes of all your systems pointing to the kingdom and let me fulfill them in my time and in my way, if you'll surrender to the mystery, if you'll remember that you are this tiny, tiny, tiny speck of dust in whom I breathe life on a tiny speck of dust spinning through a virtually infinite universe. Physicists tell us there may be multiple universes at this point. Just sit there in your seat and say, I humble myself, Father. I'm not that big. I trust you. And I trust you because of Jesus. Which brings us back to the close. Our mentor, our mascot represents our voice, Koheleth. Our mentor, the author, steps in and says, here's the summary, folks. Stay on track. And then the sage king, in his words, to guide us through the rest of this week. Would you read with me, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Let's stand.